0: All right, join with me in prayer as we begin. O God of faithfulness and truth, we come to you and uh, seek your blessing upon our study as we seek to learn your ways that we might walk in your paths. We pray that you would grant us light and understanding uh, to bless the study of your holy word that we might more and more be conformed to your likeness and your character, uh, that we too might give glory uh, to your holy name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we come to chapter 22 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is on Of Lawful Oaths and Vows. Of Lawful Oaths and Vows. Now, if I were to say that we were going to learn how to swear in Sunday school today, a lot of people would find that very odd because, unfortunately, uh, swearing for a lot of people is synonymous with sacrilege or blasphemy or profanity or obscenity, uh, the misuse of swearing, and, and more than that, even stuff that really doesn't have anything to do with swearing. Um, but that's what the word has often become connected to today. But, as we'll see in this chapter... Lawful oaths and vows are part of religious worship, it's a way in which uh, we give honor to God, and uh, therefore there's a whole chapter on it here in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, It's very important, certainly there are misuses of this, which we should seek to avoid, Um, but it's also something uh, that is part of God's worship. This is on page 861 of Lawful Oaths and Vows. Uh, If you're following along in the hymnal, articles 1 through 4 are going to be on oaths, and then articles 5 through 7 are going to be on vows. Uh, We're going to discuss kind of the nuances of those two different things, uh, but first we'll look at oaths. Uh, I'll go ahead and begin by reading article 1, which is essentially answering the question, uh, what is an oath? What is a lawful oath? A lawful oath is a part of religious worship wherein upon just occasion the person swearing solemnly calleth God to witness what he asserteth or promiseth and to judge him according to the truth or falsehood of what he sweareth. First thing we see is that uh, a lawful oath is a part of religious worship. It's not necessarily a a part of regular worship. Religious worship; it's on particular occasions, upon a just occasion, Uh, but it is part of the worship of God. We can find this in Deuteronomy chapter ten, verse twenty, when speaking of the the worship and honor that God deserves, especially from His people. It says, "You shall fear the Lord your God; you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him." And by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. And so as we ought to fear him, serve him, hold fast to him, uh, right in there in the midst of these expressions of, of worship is by his name you shall swear. When we swear by his name we are ascribing to him omniscience that God knows all things, that he will know the truth or falsehood of what we swear, whether we will perform it or whether what we assert is true or false, that even though it might be hidden from the eyes of men, yet God sees all things and he will be able to enforce this oath, and that God is omnipotent, that God is able to enforce the oath, that there's nothing out of his reach. Now, so we are ascribing to him the honor to his name, when we swear by his name as the one who is um, infinite and good and sees all things. Uh, now, by an oath, a person who is swearing the oath calls God to witness what he asserts or promises and uh, to judge him according to the truth or falsehood of what he swears. Uh, we might see this in Second Chronicles chapter 6. Second Chronicles chapter six verses twenty-two through twenty-three. This is in Solomon's prayer of dedication at the temple, as he's praying to God. Um, he says. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear from heaven and act and judge your servants, repaying the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head, and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. And so he's here praying that God would would act upon these oaths, that he would repay the guilty, that he would vindicate the righteous, uh, that he would answer these oaths that would be taken. It's also referring to, you know, if someone's made to take an oath, there's a particular law in in Exodus where um, if someone entrusts something to someone else, but that thing that gets broken or dies, uh, that person is to take an oath that, you know, he wasn't at fault in, in doing it, that he didn't help himself to his neighbor's thing. Uh, and that would be an end of the dispute. So that sort of thing is in mind here, where a, a person is is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath. Um, and so, uh, there's two kinds of oaths. There's that in which God is a witness to what someone asserts. Uh, so in the, in that case, for example, you know, I did not kill your donkey. You know, and, and someone might swear to affirm that that is the truth. Um, now, there's also an oath where someone promises something, I will do this, and let God be my witness that I will do this thing. Um, The first one is an assertory oath, I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but something by which you assert something, and another, the oath in which you promise something is called a promissory oath, and we'll see that come uh, about in a later article here. Sometimes the wording is very explicit. Sometimes it's kind of abbreviated and implicit, but that's the, the meaning of an oath uh, in which we call God to witness and to enforce, uh, to, to judge the truth or falsehood of what is sworn. Yes, yeah. We'll talk about um, is it right for a Christian to swear at all here in, in the second article. But, yeah, we find uh, oaths being used in the New Testament as well. Um, and it certainly was used before the temple was built, too. Uh, but once the temple was built, that was kind of the center of, of God's worship. Prayers were made to his temple. Likewise, you know, oaths being made and directed towards uh, the temple as, as the, the presence of God among his people. So that's basically what what we're talking about, what an oath is. Now let's look at Article 2, Who Ought We to Swear By? And how do we avoid taking his name in vain? The name of God only is that by which men ought to swear, and therein it is to be used with all holy fear and reverence. Therefore to swear vainly or rashly by that glorious and dreadful name, or to swear at all by any other thing is sinful and to be abhorred yet as in matter of weight and moment an oath is warranted by the word of god under the new testament as well as under the old so a lawful oath being imposed by lawful authority in such matters ought to be taken so a number of things in this in this paragraph but they all are rooted in the fact that we should and we do swear by God's name we should swear by God's name alone and having done so we ought not to take his name in vain Uh, what, what commandment is that that we ought not to take the name of the Lord your God in vain any of the children here know which commandment that is thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain hold on yep is that right Alfred Yes, the third. Is that right? Is that what you're going to say, Roman? Yes. It's on your coloring page, too, although they have a, a looser translation. You shouldn't misuse the name of God. Uh, but the idea of taking it in vain is, is, is holding it lightly, is, is not treating it, giving it the weight and worth uh, that it ought to be given. So we should swear by God's name, because again, this is an act of worship. We should not worship other gods. We should not worship creatures. We're ascribing God omnipotence and omniscience. uh, As Deuteronomy said, by his name uh, you shall swear. Uh, That's recounted elsewhere in Deuteronomy. We find that in Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 7. Speaking of those who had done wrongly, how can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods. Uh, He he condemns the people of Israel by swearing by those who are no gods. Uh, Rather, in accordance with Deuteronomy, they ought to swear by the name of the Lord, their God. And, of course, the commandments say you should not take the name of God in vain. And so we should not swear vainly, you know, to no purpose. Uh, We should not swear rashly, uh, without care and uh, careful intent, uh, and and wisdom. You should not swear by any other thing, as if it minimized uh, the oath. And this is a trap that the Pharisees fell into, uh, that we find in the New Testament, especially in chapter 23 in Matthew, where they would be like, oh, if you swear, let me just look it up to make sure I get it right. But they would make distinctions about if you swear by this thing, then you're bound by the oath. But if you're sworn by this thing, then you're not bound by the oath. Um, Chapter 23, verse 16. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And if you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath, you blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. And so they were using vain oaths that... um, might give a little extra punch to their words, but yet they could wiggle out of. Uh, By the way, they were defining things, but Jesus would have uh, no such uh, distinctions that it's all uh, binding and that you are, in fact, swearing by God's name. So we should, therefore, simply swear by God's name to recognize the importance and weight of what we are doing or not swear at all. And that's where the passages in, in Matthew... 5, for example, there's verse 34. James has a very similar passage where Jesus says... Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Notice he doesn't say, do not take an oath by the name of God. Uh, he again he's primarily dealing with the what they had heard said the teachings of the scribes and Pharisees uh, don't swear by heaven or earth or jerusalem uh, do not uh, be adding these things to your language first of all just let your yes and no be reliable enough as it is uh, do not take these oaths do not uh, swear by any other thing as if it minimized the seriousness of the oath and and do not swear rashly simply let your words carry that weight in normal situations. But the question arises, is it right for Christians to swear at all? And there would be those like the Anabaptists during the Reformation or the Quakers a little later on uh, who would say, well, you see here these words from Jesus, do not swear at all. We should not swear at all. And so they would refuse to take oaths, which would become very important because there's a number of important oaths that people would take in the course of Uh, politics and civil society Uh, but the reformers and the confession and myself would say this is a misunderstanding of the words of Jesus first of all because what I just said the context what what Jesus himself is addressing as the error that he was correcting uh, but also because we should compare it with the rest of scripture you know the rest of scripture helps us interpret scripture and what is being meant it's an act of worship by which we ascribe glory to God in the first place. Paul also uh, swears, not the kind of profane swearing that we we're talking about earlier, the way people understand swearing, but, but uh, properly. For example, in Second Corinthians chapter 1, he'll say things like, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. So, so he's, he's swearing an oath here that what he says is true, that he's calling God to witness against him if he's not telling the truth uh, and, and invoking the, the name of God. Uh, we find this in Galatians 1.20 as well. We find this in the prophecies of the Messianic age. For example, in Isaiah 65, as it's looking forward to the New Testament, what would, be, um, what would that look like? It says in forty five sixteen, "...so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth, and he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten." and are and from my eyes. Uh, Jeremiah 4 verse 2 says as well. We also have the example of the angels. There's both in the end of Daniel and in Revelation 10 uh, that the angel takes an oath with hand lifted up to heaven uh, that the, these prophecies would come to pass. Certainly the words of an angel are reliable and true. His yes is yes and his no is no. Uh, but for the benefit of those Listening, he takes an oath. And the angel who I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, and there would be no more delay. Uh, and continues to describe the prophecies being spoken. We also have Christ's example when he was on trial that. Uh, He had been silent in the trial, but then when he's put under oath by the high priest, uh, he answers and confesses the truth. In Matthew 26, 63, but Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robe and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? We have now heard his blasphemy. That was the way one would put someone under an oath to adjure him by the living God. And Jesus says, Yes, I am the Christ, uh, Son of Man, that you will see coming on the clouds of heaven. Hebrews talks about how an oath is used to put an end to controversy between men, and then how God himself swore and took an oath uh, to guarantee the promises to his people. And then finally in First Thessalonians five, at the end of First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians five twenty seven. Paul says, Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So Paul put the saints in Thessalonica under oath uh, to have this letter read uh, to, uh, the, all, to all the brothers. And so when we compare Scripture with Scripture, we see uh, Jesus correcting Uh, certain practices, and certain ways in which God's name was being profaned, uh, but that there is a proper use of oaths that is warranted by God's word, not only in the Old Covenant, but also in the New Covenant. And not only that is it, um, are there occasions in which it is warranted, but when it's imposed by lawful authority in these matters of weight and moment, such as, for example, a court case, it ought to be taken, uh, that there's a certain obligation to take that oath. Um, We've seen that in some of the examples already, um, and there would be more that we could multiply from Scripture. Nehemiah uh, laying people under oath, for example. So who, yes? Yes? I would say the the particular act is an act of religious worship, such as if we're in a, a session of Congress and it opens with prayer, the prayer would be a part of religious worship, but it doesn't mean that the session of Congress is a service of religious worship, but that particular act would be. All right, let's go on to Article 3. Basically, how and what are we to swear? Whoever takes an oath ought duly to consider the weightiness, of so solemn an act, and therein to avouch nothing, but what he is fully persuaded is the truth. Neither may any man bind himself by oath to anything but what is good and just, and what he believeth so to be, and what he is able and resolved to perform. So consider the weightiness of the act. Don't do it rashly, but consider the weightiness. Do this in the fear of God because you're invoking him to enforce what you're about to say. That's no light thing. We should revere God. So only assert things in your oath that you are fully persuaded is the truth. Uh, Don't assert something that you're kind of doubtful about, like, I'm not sure if it's true or not, and then go ahead and call God to judge you for the truth of, of what you assert. You know, make sure what you assert, you're fully persuaded, that's the truth. Likewise, only promise in your oath to do Good and just things, which you are sure are good and just things, and things which you are able to perform, and things you are resolved to perform. So don't promise and swear to do something which you're not able to do, uh, or you know which you uh, are not sure is good and just, which you might regret later on. Uh, You you don't. You want to be careful that you don't swear to do something that is sinful. Um, Then you would have to repent of such an oath. Now, in 1903, we had a, there's an, a revision in the American version of the Westminster Confession of Faith which I haven't found yet great explanation for why it was admitted because it sounds to me a lot very similar to the end of the second article um, where it talks about if it's imposed upon you it ought to be taken, you know, by lawful authority, but in the third article it ended originally with the sentence yet it is a sin to refuse an oath touching anything that is good and just being imposed by lawful authority. So that was omitted, so that's no longer asserted by the Westminster Confession of Faith as we've adopted it. Um, so I guess that may be a little stronger than what's said in, in Article 2, um, but again, I, I didn't dis, you know find in this week at least someone discussing why that one was omitted uh, in 1903. Uh, partially because there were a lot of other things being done in 1903, a lot of which we haven't adopted when the OPC was formed, and so a lot of the discussion about those revisions focuses on more controversial things than the omission of that particular sentence. Sure. What's omitted is, yet it is a sin to refuse an oath touching anything that is good and just being imposed by lawful authority. So, I guess that's a more debatable statement. So, the one in seems more of a positive ought to be taken. The one that was admitted sounds like it's a negative. Right, right, right. So, somehow, you know, you're still okay with saying it ought to be taken, but to say that it's a sin not to take it, they wanted to admit. So, I guess maybe they're saying there's maybe more exceptions to that general statement that they felt the other one didn't cover but like i said i'm just speculating here why why it was omitted let's go to number four last one on oaths basically what excuses are illegitimate and which ones are legitimate how to, to get out of an oath and there's a lot of illegitimate excuses An oath is to be taken in the plain and common sense of the words, without equivocation or mental reservation. It cannot oblige to sin, but in anything not sinful being taken, it binds to performance, although to a man's own hurt. Nor is it to be violated, although made to heretics or infidels. All right, so what are some illegitimate excuses to get out of an oath? Reasons that don't actually get you out of an oath. That are mentioned here in the article. Right, right, yeah. So therefore, I I don't have to to, to uh, follow through on it. And this is what happened to John Huss when he's you know promised safe passage to the council, and they're like, oh, it looks like you're a heretic. We don't have to keep that anymore. So now we don't have to give you safe passage. We can burn you at the stake. Um, so that was a real thing. You know, as they wrote this, that the Roman Catholics said that that would be a legitimate excuse, that you don't have to keep oaths to heretics or infidels. Um, But that doesn't really, the fact that they're religious or not, doesn't really change the fact that you should be faithful to your oath. Um, And you've called upon God to enforce that. What's another illegitimate excuse? difficulty? Inconvenience, difficulty, yeah, even to your own hurt. Um, Psalm 15 says the godly man swears even to his own hurt, or he, he performs his oath even to his own hurt. Um, yeah, you said you were going to do something, but now it's against your best interest, but you still swore it, so you need to follow through on it. One example that Augustine and others would bring, which is from uh, pagan Rome, but you know, if even the pagans did this, um, it's a good example of swearing and keeping it even to your own hurt. There was a soldier, Marcus Regulus. He was a Roman prisoner in the hands of the Carthaginians. And the Carthaginians sent him to Rome to negotiate a prisoner exchange because they were at war. Uh, But they first made him take an oath to, to return to Carthage if he failed. You know, if he succeeded, he would be one of those exchanged. But he went and persuaded the Romans to not agree to a prisoner exchange because it wouldn't be in the best interest of the Romans. Um, so he said, don't exchange prisoners. This would be a bad idea for you. And so they agreed to that. But the, and the Romans didn't compel him to return. His friends were saying, don't return because they're going to be angry at you because you frustrated their plans. Don't return. Uh, but he returned to Carthage because he had sworn that he would return to Carthage. And as it was expected, they uh, put him to death. Rather cruelly, putting him in a box with nails all around it, so he wasn't able to sleep, and and he died. Uh, but he had kept his oath that he had sworn. He hadn't didn't have to swear that oath. You know, he could have remained in in Carthage, but uh, he uh, had made the oath and therefore kept it, even to his own hurt. Um, equivocation or mental reservation is another. Uh, illegitimate excuse. You know, you should, should take the oath in the way that people, that you're swearing to, understand it. Uh, not saying one thing, but then mentally saying, but I don't actually mean that part of it. Um, you should, should simply be honest with your words. Psalm 24, 4 uh, speaks of this as well. But there is one legitimate excuse. If you have promised to do something sinful, you should repent of making that oath. And then break that oath and not do that sinful thing. Uh, an oath cannot oblige a person to sin. For example, in 1 Samuel uh, 25, King David swears an oath to obliterate every male in the household of Nabal because Nabal had refused to show him hospitality despite all the good David had shown to him. And so he, he calls God uh, uh, to witness, Lord do so, uh, do to me and more also if I leave any males uh, alive among his household. And then he goes and Abigail meets him and diffuses the situation and gives him gifts and he thanks Abigail for preventing him from sinning and he doesn't carry out his oath. Uh, and that's portrayed as a good thing uh, that he was saved from sinning and, and bringing guilt upon his, his, he, himself and his people um, that he did not carry through On that oath. Um, You should still repent of having made a sinful oath. That's where the sin lies in that situation. All right, I I know we've gone through a lot of time. Um, Let me go ahead and finish this, though, on vows. So, number five. A vow is of like nature with a promissory oath and ought to be made with the like religious care and to be performed with the like faithfulness. All right, so this one's pretty easy to explain. A lot of what we just said about oaths applies to vows because an oath is like a promissory uh, oath, that type of oath where you promise to do something. Uh, A vow is similar to that. So a lot of what we said carries through. Let me go ahead to Article 6. It is not to be made to any creature but to God alone. And that it may be accepted it is to be made voluntarily out of faith and conscience of duty, in way of thankfulness for mercy received or for the obtaining of what we want, whereby we more strictly bind ourselves to necessary duties, or to other things, so far and so long as they may fitly co induce thereunto. So to whom should vows be made? To God. Uh, make your vows unto God and pay them, Psalm seventy six says. Uh, vows are something that are made to god now in english we sometimes use the word vow to refer more broadly to any solemn promise but in in the bible and in the confession what it's talking about is a particular thing in which someone uh, binds themselves to do something to god a vow made to god and to vow to any uh, creature to any of the saints Uh, to false gods uh, would be uh, worshipping the creature rather than the creator. Think of when Luther was knocked down by a lightning bolt. If I remember correctly, he actually made his vow to St. Anne. You know, St. Anne, protect me and I'll become a monk. That would be an example of what's being condemned here, uh, that a person should make vows to God. Um, But covenants in the Bible are spoken of as made by oaths you know we think of marriage vows because we're talking about these solemn promises being made but that's more really under the category of of oaths between people which in which God is a witness here a vow is made to God of course he's a witness to it as well Um, it's to be made voluntarily better to not vow and not pay rather than to vow and not pay uh, it's something that one takes upon him freely, out of faith and conscience of duty. Deuteronomy 23, 21 through 23. In way of thankfulness for mercy received when the sailors uh, with Jonah were delivered from the storm, and the storm stopped, then they made vows uh, to the true and living God as a way of thankfulness for what God had given them. Jonah 1, 16. Uh, often it's for the obtaining of what we want. And we're going to come across that next week. Uh, Jacob makes a vow. Uh, find in Numbers 21.2, uh, in First Samuel 1 Samuel 1.11, where Hannah seeks uh, a, a child and makes a vow to dedicate him to the Lord. If the Lord gives her a child, um, these are the sorts of things that it's speaking of. Often are made in times of trouble or a need and then paid as an act of thanksgiving uh, for this help. So Psalm 50 says, you know, pay... Your vows to the Lord, offer to Him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Psalm 66 speaks of how He made vows in times of trouble and now He comes to repay that in praise to God. We make a general vow of devotion to the Lord in the sacraments and in our profession of faith. Um, By a vow, we more strictly bind ourselves to necessary duties, things that we already were supposed to do, uh, or to other things that that coincide that help uh these necessary duties let me read number 7 then no man may do to any no man may vow to do anything forbidden in the word of god or what would hinder any duty therein commanded, or which is not in his own power, and for the performance whereof he hath no promise of ability from God, in which respects popish monastical vows of perpetual single life, professed poverty, and regular obedience are so far from being degrees of higher perfection that they are superstitious and sinful snares in which no Christian may entangle himself. So don't become a monk. Don't vow to do anything forbidden in the Word of God. Don't be like those Jews that, that vowed to not eat until they killed Paul. That would be a bad vow to make. Um, do not vow to do anything that would hinder your duty, like those who vowed Corbin. You know, dedicated goods to the temple so they wouldn't have to care for their parents. Uh, do not vow to do anything that's not in your power with no promise of ability from God. Uh, for example. God gave marriage as uh, uh, a good thing and among other things in a fallen world as a remedy uh, for sexual immorality. It's something that he tells us to do if we don't have the gift of continency. And so no one's promised a gift of continency for the rest of their life. So uh, no one should pledge themselves to perpetual singleness um, since that is not... Uh, that gift is not guaranteed to any person. Uh, Professed poverty was another part of the monastical oaths, uh, which would be uh, contrary to things that we have in Scripture, a temptation of God, as Psalm 30 speaks of, you know, do not give me poverty lest I be tempted to steal and profane the name of God, but rather the thief is to labor with his hands that he might have something to give to those in need uh, or regular obedience Uh, to to the abbot Uh, but rather Christ has made us free so do not uh, seek to become uh, the slaves of men so these are not degrees of higher perfection but they are superstitious we don't have reason to believe God would be pleased with these things uh, and are in fact sinful snares that trip people up alright so oaths and vows Um, that's this chapter. Uh, Any questions? I know we've gone over time. Any questions before we wrap it up? All right. Let me go ahead and close this in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us in keeping your covenant and your oath toward us uh, to grant us uh, eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, through faith in him. We pray that you would help us to be faithful like you, uh, to keep our word, whether we say yes or no, uh, or in the more uh, solemn occasions of oaths and vows, you would help us to be faithful and true. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.